0: Welcome to Capital Close-Up. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, broadcast on WKXL, AM, and FM. We are podcast wherever you find your podcasts all around the known universe. If you're listening on podcasts, please subscribe, like us, tell your friends, distribute the news on your social media. We're brought to you today by the Capital Center for the Arts in Concord, New Hampshire, ccanh.org. Summer season still going on outdoors, and if all goes well, we'll be visiting their two great venues, the Bank of New Hampshire Stage and the Big Stage indoors, as soon as we can get the doors open, ccanh.org. Well, Concord is home to many wonderful not-for-profit organizations of all kinds as the state capital. We have social service um, uh, not-for-profits. We also have an abundance of great cultural not-for-profits. Tim Sink, uh, Executive Director of the Chamber of Commerce, who was on our show the other day, uh, lauded Concord for being a cultural capital, and one of the significant not-for-profit organizations in Concord that I've long been associated with is the Concord Community Music School, and we are welcoming today the almost brand new Interim Executive Director of the Concord Community Music School, Mary Ann Lindberg. Welcome to Capital Close-Up.
1: Thank you so much, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So for our listeners and and for you because you and I have not had a chance to speak uh my association uh, go with the with the uh, CCMS goes way way back um when uh, the founder Peggy Center who recently retired um was talking about the crazy idea of forming as uh, founding a community music school while we were uh, in a sauna out in Dunbarton, so that's that's kind of where the idea uh, was was born, at least as far as I'm concerned. And we talked about it, and uh, it it seemed like a bit of a crazy idea. But she was in Boston, had been visiting New Hampshire a lot, and uh, had this idea, and uh, founded the found got the got the thing up in a in a in a room in, uh, as I recall, the Kimball Mansion, now attached to the Capital Center for the Arts. The, over the years, the Capital Center, uh, the um, CCMS grew and prosper. My wife, Pego um, has been teaching there, we figured out, for 30 years this year. So we, we go way, way back with CCMS. Um, but I would like to, to explore Uh, how you arrived um, at CCMS and uh, what you found and uh, what you see. But before we get there, tell us a little bit about you. Where did you grow
1: up? I grew up near the Pittsburgh area, actually. So not in New England at all.
0: Big town, small town?
1: Uh, it It was a suburb of Pittsburgh. So it was growing rapidly, but fairly small when I started as a young child there. Uh-huh. I've moved all over the world over the years and all over the country, and um, we finally ended up in New Hampshire about 13 years ago. I was recruited to come up at, to be vice president for advancement at Keene State.
0: See, now, when I, ask, when I ask a question about people's early lives, almost everybody jumps right to where they are now because people rarely get to hear about early lives, and because I'm betting that when you were in elementary school or graduating from high school on your way to college, you did not think to yourself, I am going to have a career as a philanthropic specialist and certified fundraising professional, um, uh, able to help organizations find their feet, stay on their feet and move into the future. I'm betting that you had other plans when you were a kid what when you were a kid what did you think you would end up doing
1: I really had no idea because nothing seemed to be a great fit for me um I loved music because my mother and her family were all very very gifted musicians um and so I gravitated toward that naturally Mm -hmm. Uh, do you play an instrument I'm my I, I was a professional singer for 10 years. So yes, I do. I play piano, but I'm mostly a vocalist.
0: Really? And when 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 you discovered uh, when you discovered your gift? Um, when was that? Was it early on when you were? Were you young? Were you in high school?
1: Well, I, I discovered my passion early on from the time I was a very small child. I mean, you know, two, three years old on because I always heard this beautiful music being played in my house. Um, I didn't discover that I had any sort of talent for it until I was probably in junior high school. Um, and it began to develop, and I actually became a professional uh, when I was 15. Really? What was your first gig? Um, it was actually with a hard rock band. Really?
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh huh. I've sung in places from Avery Fisher Hall and Madison Square Garden down to the places with the chicken wire in front of the stage and even a a series of rowboats with the symphony orchestra on a lake in Vienna.
0: So, (laughs) Oh my goodness. Wait a second. How did, how did we get from a 15 year old hard rock uh, singer to Avery Fisher Hall? Just help, help me understand that a little bit.
1: Well, I, I, there isn't, there aren't very many kinds of music that I don't love. Um, And so while I was performing as a a hard rock band member, um, I was also continuing to develop as a professional uh, classical musician. Um, I've done opera uh, and when people would hear me, they would introduce me to other things. My agent was able to introduce me to people who would then pull me into different venues. So I've done nightclub work, I've done gospel work in churches, Um, it's Hmm. just a matter of who you know and who you meet and the connections that you make.
0: Did you attend uh, conservatory?
1: I did not. I did not have the opportunity to do that. I I did, music was one of my majors as an undergrad at Bucknell University in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, But I, my master's degree is actually an MBA from Penn State.
0: Uh-huh. So so when when uh, I mean, I'm I'm a, I'm a musician and I've had, a, as I said to people, between uh, my graduating college and uh, uh, going to law school, I had eight careers in show business, um, including uh, folk singer, filmmaker, theater, theatrical, musical director. I mean, I had I had lots of different careers. I ended up as a lawyer and Pego and I ended up doing doing a lot of music. Um, when I ran for Congress, I had to convince people I wasn't just a kiddie rock star, but um, I I could I also had other had 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 other talents. So I'm curious about how you found the mix of your passion for music, but getting a master's uh, uh, as an MBA because um, you know all all I, my 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 story about that is uh, I remember. Uh, when I was in law school, having gone there because I followed my grandmother's advice, who said, you should have something to fall back on. And I've been falling back my entire life. But I remember I was in Boston. I was in law school. I was recording at a really terrific studio, some original songs I'd written. There was a garage next door. And one late night or early morning, um, as I was picking up my car after a session, um, the 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 guy who brought the car down from the parking garage says, "So what you been doing at this this time of night?" I said, "I'm recording next door." He looked at me, and it was it was a very there was like a theatrical pause, beat, beat, beat. Well, he said, "Don't give up your day job," <laughs> and uh, and and so uh, so here I am. So, how to t- talk to me about? Uh, music, and an MBA?
1: Well, I got, I was interested in um, the arts in general, and in looking into that, uh, even in my later years of high school, um, was intrigued with the concept of arts administration, but that was back in the 70s, where there, there were no degrees in anything like that. And so I took a job with the Pittsburgh Opera um, in their administration office, just so I could learn more about it, and when I finished my bachelor's degree and decided it was time to move on from having been a performer. um, And I was applying for jobs in different places and they all said, but yes, my dear, you have a wonderful degree, but what can you do? And arts administration really didn't seem like much of a path at that point for various reasons. Um, So I went back and got a three-year MBA program degree um, which then opened doors to be able to try a lot of different things. So I didn't go right into philanthropic work from there. I actually went into corporate finance for a while um, and decided that I loved the nonprofit field too much. And so I ended up going back into that and going to work mostly for universities, just because that's where the openings were for me. So uh, I'm,
0: I'm, I'm curious, it seems like um, such a world away uh, from a singing career. So before you were in corporate finance and before you got your MBA, um, you had you went from hard rock to classical to opera to Avery Fisher Hall. And that was all before you got your MBA. Yes, that's remarkable. And did did you did you sing um around the world did you sing in the united states and and if you t- t- talk to me a little bit about your career i'm just i'm curious did you have an agent um what kinds of pieces did you sing as an opera singer
1: um i did have an more than one agent over the 10 years that i did singing um i had record contracts with three different record companies and uh and, was-
0: and anything we can hear
1: Uh, Not that I'm going to share.
0: (laughs) Did you record
1: under those contracts? Oh, yeah. But Um. I was actually doing rock classical and all these other things all at the same time. It wasn't sequential the way you described it. Right. I might be on tour in a city doing a stadium show. And then the next day I would be doing, you know musical theater somewhere. Um, and it, you know, we bounced around all over the place as as far as what I was doing. Um,
0: Oh my, oh my. So, um, uh, so along the way, um, you, you, you moved into corporate finance after your MBA, what kind of company were you working for? Big company, small company?
1: Massive company, one of the pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies, excuse me
0: uh, right and yeah. and when and I'm just curious when you say you worked in corporate finance, what were you doing?
1: Um, I wasn't there real long because it didn't take me long to figure out it wasn't for me for various reasons mm-hmm. but I was just helping to prepare financial statements and doing the research in the office to make sure that the, the right data was going into the right reports and things remember right. this is all pretty much prior to computers at that point so
0: right and so you decided at some point that the not-for-profit world was was more suited to your passions and you you moved on was- and I
1: actually am, I'm one of the few people who actually can claim I chose fundraising as a career because while I was getting my MBA I was researching things that would bring together my my love of the nonprofit sector and arts in particular with my acuity in finance and marketing and some of those areas and actually came up with fundraising and started looking into that. And that's how I eventually got into it was very much on purpose. Um, And most people fall into fundraising.
0: Yeah. I've done a fair amount of fundraising in my time, both for not for profits Um, as well as in politics. But uh, political fundraising is a little bit different than uh, basic not-for-profit fundraising because, um, I don't know, not-for-profit fundraising is is a lot more fun, I think, than political fundraising, where I ended up locked in a room with um, 20-somethings forcing me to call people who used to be my friends. Uh, and asking them for money for a political campaign. It, it's rather, uh, unfortunately, it, it, the current state of our political system um, makes that almost a full-time job. So fundraising in a political sense is very different than fundraising for not-for-profits, um, where, um, you know, if you, if you have a passion for the organization you're working for, um, it's kind of a pleasure to visit people and uh, ask them for jaw dropping gifts. Um, I, I was the first chairman of the board of the Capital Center for the Arts in Concord, and mm-hmm. um, uh, we had uh, wonderful uh, community leaders working, working with us. And I have fond memories of visits to uh, to Concord luminaries, asking them for 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 large jaw dropping gifts and having them say yes. So um, it you know it helped get the Capital Center off the ground. Where where did you start your your not for profit career?
1: Well, I started at the Pittsburgh Opera Company, um, and then after I got back into it, I went to work for Penn State University.
0: Mm-hmm. And was that uh, fundraising for them?
1: It was. Um, I was actually I started out as a development assistant in their College of Science, uh, which was amusing considering that's probably my worst subject ever. <laughs> Um, But then I was moved over into being the director of donor relations, which meant that I did all of the the university's entertaining around fundraising, all of the entertaining around the football games, um, and traveled with the president and other board members and stuff to go visit donors. So it was actually a very interesting introduction and learning experience for me.
0: And what did you take away from that experience?
1: And um, what I took away was um, the knowledge that I was actually very comfortable sitting down with anybody from any walk of life, um, because when I was growing up my father. worked for Westinghouse and brought people from all over the world back for dinner and we were expected to sit there and talk. Uh, no matter what age we were, we were expected to sit at the table and talk as if we were intelligent beings, so it was great preparation for being able to sit down with people who you know were being asked for millions of dollars. Uh, as you say, jaw-dropping amounts back then, that was huge. Right. Now it seems like it, just when you get to the point where you think you might actually be in sight of being a millionaire, they've changed it to billionaire.
0: <laughs> I know. the uh, the um, When uh, when we started um, thinking about the Capital Center for the Arts way back when, it was <clears throat> 1990. Uh, the, there was a, a recession, storefronts were closed, um, and uh, the, the study group that uh, told us that we could never resuscitate a for-profit theater, we had to create a not-for-profit art center, uh, was talking about jaw-dropping numbers. They, they said it was going to take at least a million dollars, um, maybe two, maybe even three million dollars to um, open 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 this place up and um, at, in Concord at the time people said "Oh, he'll never raise that kind of money that's that that's way I mean that's that's just crazy money and when we looked at what it would take to build a theater from scratch even then it was like 20 million 20 million dollars so we said look you know let, let's compare let's compare the numbers but uh, inflation has certainly hit uh, in the philanthropic and fundraising world, as you say, uh, what used to be a million dollars now seems to be a billion dollars. And every time I say a billion dollars, I'm, I'm thinking of channeling Mike Myers, you know, a billion dollars is, uh, is all I could think about.
1: Well, when I was at Penn State, it was in the very early 80s. And um, they were just at that point, beginning a $300 million campaign. So I also learned a lot about you know, a higher league of fundraising than you'll, you get to most with most organizations. Um, right. and at a point when the biggest campaign in the country was about 6 million, 6, uh, 600 million. And that was Stanford.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, well, uni- un- universities, universities need to raise an awful lot of money to keep going.
1: Yeah.
0: We, uh, we left you in Pennsylvania. Uh, mm-hmm. Where'd you, where did you go after that? Because your experience really is, is fascinating to me, and I know our listeners uh, really are interested in in what you bring to this job at the CCMS.
1: Well, from, from Penn State, I went to the University of Buffalo Foundation and was there um, in various development capacities. Um, after that, uh, I went to actually Westminster Choir College in New Jersey, Princeton, New Jersey for a few years. And... After that, I worked for a hospice. I worked for a special needs adoption and foster care agency. Um, I went back to working, uh, I went into working as a consultant at that point and became the managing partner in a firm out of Pittsburgh for almost 10 years. Um, And then went back into university work for a while at Bloomsburg State University in Pennsylvania and then Keene State up here. And then about seven years ago, I, I went out back on my own as a consultant again working with all sorts of nonprofits Um, and I think one of the things that I bring is I probably have the widest base of development knowledge of of most people because there isn't a job in development that I haven't done from typing in names and addresses to asking people for major and planned gifts Um, I've also done a fair amount of interim work uh, in operations and executive director positions um, stepping in when there's been a transition like this, uh, in some cases coming in uh, and troubleshooting how an organization can steer the ship back into the right lane um, when they've gotten sort of off off course.
0: So the your work uh, in development uh, clearly is a is a powerful foundation for working as an interim, uh, which is a very at least to my mind, a very challenging thing to do. Um, it, when an when, uh, executive director uh, or manager of operations or whatever major position or top position there is comes into an organization as an interim, um, there are always unexpected situations and challenges um, uh, and many different constituencies, uh, to, to work with. Um, when you first, uh, started working as an interim, uh, what did you do to prepare yourself for the challenge of moving from a development role into a managerial role? Um, and one in which you were inheriting whatever the situation was?
1: Well, because I moved around from institution to institution, effectively I had to do that each time I went to a new place. And as a consultant, you have to really be able to identify a lot of things very quickly in order to be able to help a client. So stepping into a role, um, you know, certainly I've managed staffs of of many people over the years, so that was not new for me. Um, Excuse me. But I will say that you know here there, there's a terrific team in place. Um, the faculty are, are, I mean, the ones that I've met and the ones I've heard about are just fabulous. Um, you know, Peggy did a wonderful job of pulling together people who are passionate but who are also highly skilled at whatever they do, whether it's the music or the staff side, and so. Stepping in, it makes it a lot easier. Um, One of the interim positions I had prior to this was an organization whose executive director died suddenly um, and had not left behind any records, any notes, even passwords that you needed to get into things. Um, None of that was in place. So that was a little bit more challenging. You know, here I've got a great team of people to work with. So
0: So let, let me take you back a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about the, your thought process and the steps and I'd like to, uh, pick your brain just a little bit. So our listeners really understand what goes into this. You, you're uh, the, the executive director of a not-for-profit organization, uh, suddenly passes away. Um, someone, uh, says we better get an interim. And they 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 look online or word of mouth and come across you. And you get a telephone call. Um, uh, who calls you? Who did you, who called you in that in that case?
1: Well, in that case, I had actually been working with the executive director who passed away ah. in development. And when I heard that she had passed away, and I, I knew the board chair, I had actually reached out to him to suggest that an intern for a few months might be a good idea while they figured out sort of how to, how to approach the future. So I had a little bit of insider knowledge on that one that I wouldn't normally have, but usually it would be the board chair who would reach out. Yeah, so uh,
0: what is your um, assessment process um, when, when when you step into the role Uh, In the in the case we're talking about where you had been working on the fundraising or development side. Um, Now you've taken over as the interim executive director. Uh, Do you know when you walk in the door for your first day, how long uh, a gig that's going to be? Do you know whether it's going to be two months or two years? Do you have you talked about that?
1: Yeah, and what I've found is that most organizations, um, if if they're bringing me in as an interim, they always think it's going to be for less time than it ends up being. Um, they always say, oh, we'll just need your help for a month or two. And as you know, searches for any professional position generally take longer than that to begin with. And that will sure. have you all your job descriptions and everything in place. So, right. um in some cases, you know, I say fine. We'll, we'll do it on a month to month. You know, once we get in there and I can see what's happening and, and get the board to understand what the real situation is, then they can determine. Um, and in that case, it ended up. It usually ends up to be about six months um, because there usually are there are a lot of pieces that need to sort of be straightened out a little bit. Uh, even with well run organizations, there you know an, a new set of eyes looking at it from the outside can be helpful. In the case of the Concord Community Music School, um, it was from the beginning, it was meant to be an intentional interim for a year, um, and that's ish, but, you know, pretty much for a year um, while they do the search for a new CEO, and, um, and so that was what we discussed and, and what the way we worked out the arrangement
0: so I'm betting that one of that that as when you come in, whether it's the community music school or some of your other interim positions, uh, one of the things that you uh, are doing is discerning uh, what the different constituencies are within the organization uh, and figuring out uh, how they're functioning, both within their own spheres uh, and with each other. Um, so for example, uh, as you say, the a board may or may not have a clear idea of what an interim needs to do and how long, uh, it will, it will take, um, what's, what's your approach to, to the board, uh, as one of your major constituencies, because th- the board has hired you. Um, and what kind of assessment process do you go through, um, at, if, if there is kind of a, a, a routine that you now have developed about how you assess the board, where it's at, um, how, and, and, and how do you, what, what are you looking for when, when you're, uh, looking at, at the board?
1: Let me take you back a step and then I'll answer that as part of my answer, if that's okay with you. Sure. When I... When I look to take on an interim position, um, I put together a list of all of the information that I want from that organization, um, not in order to decide whether I take the position or not, but so I can begin to understand what's really going on. So I asked for a lot of financial information. I ask for org charts. I asked for um, a you know, list of the positions that are in place. What does the board look like? Um, ask specific governance questions about that. Do they have term limits and so forth? Um, I look at the programs and the mission of the organization. I look at their marketing and communications. I look at what their fundraising has been. So I'm I'm asking for all sorts of information that an executive director needs to understand in order to determine what steps to take forward. Um, Then I look at which pieces, basically it's very similar to when you're, you're doing medical triage, you go first for the thing that's most likely to kill you. So I look first at the financials most of the time to make sure that you know the lights are not about to go off um, and then work my way out from there. The board is absolutely critical to any nonprofit. And so I sit down and talk with the key board members and then eventually all of the board members um, tell me how the board operates, how does it operate relative to the executive director, who does what, So part of what I look at too is, does the board have term limits? How do they communicate with each other? How do they work with the executive director? Um, And my hope is to try and figure out where there are opportunities where I can help for improvement during the period of of the interim position. Um, I also then at times, and again, this is not the case with the school, um, I'm brought in as a change agent because the board knows something is not right. They they know that things need to be turned around a bit Um, And so there's a very intentional period of coming in and saying, we know we need to overhaul the situation, work with us on that. Um, But I I try to find as much information as I can about every aspect of the organization before I even start on day one, so that I have a better sense of what I need to be looking for and and where I need to focus my attention.
0: Hmm. So there's board, then there's the staff. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you approach the staff who must be at least usually in in some state of anxiety or concern? Uh, because you know, as as humans, we um, we really love the status quo, and uh, change is. I've always said change is a four-letter word. Um, it's uh, it's a it's a cha- it's always a challenge for for almost any of us to be as flexible as we think we'd like to be. But i But I I can only imagine what it's like for the staff to, to uh, have to deal with somebody new coming in as their boss.
1: And I'm very, very aware of that. Um, I also have a handicap in that I am one of the few people in the world who loves change. And so I've had to learn that, that I am a rare person and that most people don't like it and start with that premise. So I do a lot of listening and I ask questions to try and understand where that person's coming from, what's important to them, what are they afraid of, um, if that's the case, um, and just try to get them comfortable with me as an individual and as a professional so that we can begin to build a professional relationship. Um, and again, I think having moved around so much, it's, I'm used to having to do that coming into any of the positions that I've been in, not just the interim positions.
0: Right. Right. And 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 then uh, another constituency for not for profits, which is also uh, critical to the success of the not for profit um, moving forward, but to your success as interim, uh, is the group of donors who help support um, the not for profit because there, there is no there is no not for profit well virtually none that at least I've been familiar with that does not. Uh, rely on contrib- con- contributions from donors to sustain their operations. Um, is, are, are they a high priority for you? Is it lower priority than than learning about the board and staff? or do they are, do you have to juggle all of them uh, at the same time?
1: Um, I, I would say that all three are equal priorities in many ways, but the donors usually come sequentially after I've gotten better established with the board and with the staff. Um, and I also know that when I first come into an organization, generally speaking, I know enough to be dangerous. And the last thing you would want is me sitting down with a major donor saying, I really have no idea what our programs are.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, that's, that, that's true. It's it's oh. it,
1: By the time I get to sit down with some of them, my my goal is really to to assure them that the organization is still solid and good hands with the board um, and that the things they care about are still going to be ongoing.
0: Right. So and and then one of the the last constituencies, at least in, in my mind to consider, is the greater community. Uh, in which the not-for-profit operates, um, CCMS uh, is located in Concord, uh, but has uh, a at least in pre-pandemic times, and and we can talk a little bit about about where we are now. But in pre-pandemic times, had uh, a student body that traveled from all over um, with um, I think more, if I recall correctly, something like thirteen or fourteen hundred students, um, attending, attending classes. It's, it's a, it's a, si- it's grown to be a sizable organization. Many, you know, many of our listeners may, may have attended a, 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 recital in the, in the recital hall, but probably aren't aware of the size and scope of the operation of something like the Concord Community Music School, which I believe is the largest community music school outside a major Urban center in the United States. Um, so, what? Talk to us a little bit about uh, your approach to the community as as a constituency, and uh, any thoughts you have about the Concord Community Music Schools community.
1: Absolutely. Um, yeah, I was I was intrigued to. I mean, I knew of the reputation of the school, even though I don't live in Concord. Um, But I had no idea of the breadth of programs, people tend to think of it only as individuals taking lessons and therefore it's all about me as the the student. But in fact they have programs working with um, adults with disabilities, with seniors, with um, children who are autistic and on the spectrum learning how to move so that they can express themselves. They work with hospitals and nursing homes, there's all sorts of programs that have nothing to do with individual lessons. And so I think as we look at what parts of the community, the school actually interfaces with it's much, much broader than most people understand. Um, And in some cases I think that's probably true even for board members is that they, they tend to know one aspect of the organization, and not that all these other aspects exist. So with my being limited, I'm only 15 hours a week working with the school. Um, I still have other clients that I work with. It's probably not practical for me to try and continue to build the reputation throughout the community. But what I can do is ensure that we have people working on different aspects um, so that the board, you know, we look at the board and where they have connections, how can we leverage and maximize those connections? where do our faculty live and work and how can we leverage the networks that they have? Uh, How can we leverage the position we have literally in the center of Concord as a physical facility? So the Concord Arts Fest is coming up soon and we're gonna have programs going on with that. Uh, And so there's there's outreach, there's bringing people in. Again, the pandemic kind of puts a little bit of a kibosh on that, but um, we're doing as much as we can. We're live streaming things. there's a lot going on, even though we can't necessarily engage in all of the kinds of recitals and concerts that we might have at one point.
0: Yeah, the, the pandemic must be presenting unique challenges to uh, the music school. I, I, I'm, I'm living some of those firsthand because uh, Pego um, conducts the Songweavers, which prior to the pandemic was, you know, more than 100 women Meeting uh, every Tuesday evening and Wednesday morning, uh, preparing for an annual uh, in, you know, in person live concert, Um, full disclosure, I'm the sound guy for the song weavers, I've been uh, doing doing the sound reinforcement and recording them for uh, well, I, I guess as long as Pego has been um, the conductor, I, I really I, I love I love the gig. And I love the song weavers. And I think they abide me as the only, you know, one of the few males allowed into the sanctum. I think we, we enjoy a good relationship. But but everything has changed uh, with the pandemic. Last year, uh, it was all Zoom all the time uh, with uh, an extraordinary learning curve for technology. Pego had to figure out how to, how to teach uh, singing and create bonds for people who were now all alone in in their in their own homes and the concert uh, we created was an online totally online concert where we uh, recorded um, music uh, in in an extraordinary new way. I ended up as an audio mixer, receiving cell phone individual cell phone recordings from from tens. I mean, I can't even remember how many different cell phone recordings I had, having to funnel them into an audio program and figure out how to denoise them, declick them, and make them sound, make it sound like music. So uh, that. You
1: know how much there is to this.
0: Right. And that is not the usual for a music school, which is all about, I mean, music. You know, I mean, it's 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 personal. Um, How how how, what are you what are you thinking about the pandemic and uh, how it's affecting what's going on your job and where we're going from here?
1: Well, it certainly it affects the school as it does every other institution. Only there are certain things like you mentioned that are very difficult for a school like this. Um, You you can keep people so many feet apart. You can have people in separate offices or rooms as they work. But when you have an ensemble or you have somebody learning voice or wind instruments things that, you know, that aerosol being projected is a whole different level that we have to worry about. Plus, we serve a lot of children um, in addition to adults, and they have not been able to have the vaccine even if they wanted to yet. And so we have to look at our COVID guidelines and make sure that we're considering the safety of everyone um, whether they're in a program where they're playing keyboards or they're in a program where they're trying to sing as an ensemble. And, you know, we can do some outside things now. Come December, most people don't want to be standing out in the, the parking lot singing together while it's snowing ice around them. So, we, you know, we're looking at things like singer's masks and making specialized masks available for some of our ensembles. We're looking at how many people we might be able to continue with zoom others definitely want to be in person some of our faculty are compromised they can't do in person so one size can't fit all at an organization like this and it makes it very tricky
0: have you ever faced um, uh, a situation like this before with an arts organization in the midst of a national international global health crisis
1: I have not, and I'm not sure who among us has. I mean, this is certainly not something that's precedented within our lifetimes. Yeah. Um, perhaps re- arts organizations in Africa, they've had a lot more of this kind of thing over the generations than we have, but it's a challenge.
0: Marianne, I can't think of anybody who is uh, more experienced uh, and better placed than you to serve in this position with the Concord Community Music School. Um, your experience, uh, your steadiness, uh, and your skill is really welcomed in our community. I'm I'm hoping that our, as our listeners have gotten uh, to know you a little bit and thinking about the Concord Community Music School, that it means great things for the future.
1: Thank you so much. It's very nice of you to say that and if anyone listening is interested in learning more about the school, please have them reach out to us. We'd be happy to fill you in on what we do and how you can be involved.
0: This is Capital Close-Up. I'm your host, Paul Hodes on WKXL Podcast, wherever you find your podcasts. We've been speaking with Mary Ann Lindberg, Interim Executive Director of the Concord Community Music School. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.